Hello and welcome in to another episode of our What's Up Peoria podcast. This is the podcast that gives you everything you need to know about what's going on in Peoria. And I am your host, as always, Nathaniel Washburn, over here at the main library in Amplify Studio. And I'm excited because today we are doing a a special podcast for What's Up Peoria. This is actually going to be a two-part series. And what we are doing is we are focusing in on the Native American Heritage Month and the celebration that we do here in Peoria. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a few guests on and we have a couple of episodes for you. And we are going to talk and discuss Native American heritage, the importance of it in our city. And then we're going to give you some insight as to where, where are some things in Peoria that you can do to celebrate Native American heritage and uh, maybe see some things that you haven't seen. So we're really excited about this. It's, it's a little off the path of what we normally do with What's Up Peoria, but this is a special occasion. So as I said, this is a two-part um, series, and this is the first part of that. I have three guests with me today that I'm very excited to introduce to you. We are going to start with our main guest today, Mr. Mark Hathbar- Hackbarth. My apologies, Mark. Mark Hackbarth, who is the senior archaeologist at Logan Simpson Design. Mark, how are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. Thank you for being here, Mark. We're very excited to have you as a part of this podcast. Also with us today, we have Ann Durkin and Jill Thompson. They both work for the city of Peoria, and they are here um, because they are part of the uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee that we have within the city. So hello, Ann. Hello, Jill. How are we doing? Hello, how you doing? Hi, doing great. Thanks. I'm good. I'm excited to, to have this awesome conversation with Mark here. And um, Anne, you work in the engineering department, so yes. you do a lot in the city with the different projects, and, right. and that's very, very cool. So you see a lot of the, the city. I do. Jill, you work in the library with me, and, and we have a pretty pretty cool you know front row to some of the celebrations Absolutely. that we do and Native American Heritage Month being one of the biggest, right? Absolutely, yes. Very cool. Well, we are going to ask Mark some some questions about uh, not only uh, what's here in Peoria that we can we can discuss from a Native American perspective, but also get some of his expertise in the field of archaeology. Um, and uh, Mark, let's start off with you kind of telling us a little bit about you and uh, w- your journey through archaeology. Sure. Um, I started archaeology. Uh, in 1973. I took a field school from the University of Nebraska at Omaha and went to work at a site in South Dakota. And I just got hooked on that because it was so exciting, even though I was doing like grunt work, really hard, hot, sweaty work. (laughs) It was just a lot of fun. What does grunt work entail, I have to ask? (laughs) Um, I was new, so they put me on the least uh, sensitive features. I dug post holes, <laughs> prehistoric post holes lined with limestone to uh, chink or block in a uh, wooden post that went around a, a village. So you were so, in really, really good shape then because you were just digging a bunch <laughs> of holes, right? Uh, yes, it was <laughs> slow going holes. But yeah. No machines to help you on that one? Not at all. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. It's uh, remote locations, you know, just 
we lived on the lake so we could jump into the water. Oh, it was nice. a lot of fun. That's fun. And then, so as you uh, as you went through your career, I know you've done some work here in Peoria, and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, Palo Verde Park. What what led you, and what kind of got you here to Peoria? What, how did that how did that all work out? Well, I started out driving with my parents, and they would stop at every historical marker on the road, <laughs> and we would read those, and so that really got me interested in the past. When I went to university. Um, I really got excited about the uh, field work of archaeology. So I, in my early youth, I jumped around from job to job and worked in different locations everywhere from North Carolina to Arizona, uh, Missouri, Arkansas, a lot of places. Wow, you've seen a lot and, then. Yeah, so and that's one of the attractions of being a field archaeologist is you get to go to a lot of places and see new things. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And when I came to Arizona, I started working uh, for Arizona State University. They were doing a very large project at the intersection of uh, State Route 51, I-10, and the Loop 101. So it's at an archaeological site called La Ciudad. And while I worked there, I got a lot of experience in prehistory. Even though my experience in graduate school was I took training in historical archaeology. And so with that, that, that kind of gave you the background that you would need to, to later on in your career, um, work and work with the Palo Verde ruin area, correct? That's correct. And that was uh, a lot of fun too. So just kind of tell us a little bit about, uh, the Palo Verde site itself. What is kind of an overview of, of Palo Verde park and what's up there and what is a part of those ruins? Sure. Uh, Palo Verde park is, um, I think about 20 acres at the center of what's called the Terramar Development it's, um, near 67th Avenue and Happy Valley Road. So the, the site itself is a large Hohokam village, and it was abandoned around 80, 10, 50 or so, and it was just in really good shape when I came out there uh, in the 1990s, late 1990s. It had never been plowed. There were some looting that had been done, but we got an opportunity to really investigate what was a pristine archaeological site. And it was just very exciting to see all of these materials on the surface. And when you go to the park today, you still can see a lot of the prehistoric mounds that are left after people have been living there and their refuse goes into the same spot and it builds up. And that's mainly what you'll see uh, on your tour. There are also interpretive signs there, so I think um, you'll get a sense of what is out there and what those mounds mean. So when you say, you know, you, it sounds like when you got out there, you said there was a lot of pristine things. You know, when you started kind of digging around, what were you pulling out? What was, what was coming out of the ground? Well, let me explain that when we started out there, uh, we initially did a survey, which was just walk across the surface and looking for cultural materials. And what I mean by cultural materials is broken pottery, uh, chipped stone, ground stone, sometimes shell, and other artifacts that were left behind. Um, they're on the surface and mixed in to dirt that gets built up, as I said, into mounds. 
And so when we came out the second time, we brought a backhoe, which we used to dig uh, long trenches, about 20 meters long, I think 20 yards, 20 meters. Um, and then through various areas, close to the mounds, sometimes we intersected the mounds. Um, and we were looking for any type of soil stains. You see what happens when, uh, over time, things collapse, houses, uh, pits, and they get filled in with water that washes down the slope and drops a little bit of dirt. But what was left in the pits by the prehistoric people were the ash and charcoal of cooking, or when the house collapsed, all of the organic material in the roof collapsed down onto the house floor. And so it rotted away, and you would see darker stain, organic staining in the soil, in the profile of these trenches that we dug. And then based on that material, we could say, hey, this is a site that has a lot of buried archaeological features that can tell us about the past. And we recommended that another third level of excavation uh, begin. And that data recovery is uh, what we did in 1998. Oh, okay. And, yeah, and that was a big project for this area. Yeah, that's um, that's just like really fascinating to think about being able to kind of unlock history, right, a, a level at a time. Is that essentially how it works? You're kind of just unlocking, you know, it tells you all about the people of that area, how they lived, all, all those things. Is that what, as you're digging down, is that what you're finding? Right. If you think of um, stratigraphy, which is what archaeologists call uh, these layers at a site, think of it as an onion. Towards the center of the onion comes first, and then the next layer out is a little older, or a little younger, sorry, and then on and on until you get to the modern time. So as we stand on the ground surface and look down, you can see through time how things are laid out in the ground. And that's basically what we were doing. In this case, the site was occupied for about 200 years, maybe 150 to 200 years. And so we had a very short time period that these people were living here. And that helped because then you don't have a lot of overbuilding. Like if you go back to Rome or anywhere, you can see uh, the Roman Forum, and right next to it is a modern trash pit. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just amazing there. But here, with such a short time period, everything was laid out. Uh, straightforward, easy to see, no intrusions, nice work. So from a historical con context then, how important is a site like that? Extremely important. Because it wasn't plowed, you have materials that in some cases were just inches below the surface. Oh. And that is very important because normally things get rebuilt on and uh, disturbed. But in this case, it was just left there as we came. In one case, we came to um, what was a pit house, and I will mention that those are semi-subterranean. You actually step down into the ground. That's why it's called a pit house. Uh, we found the doorstep, the threshold, at the ground surface, and that's just so unusual because most of the sites in the uh, in the valley here have been plowed and disturbed, and you don't see that. So we got to actually walk on the same steps and treads that the people in the past did. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, you're 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 literally walking that history, right? With those, with the 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 the, 
indigenous people that live there to be able to walk those same steps. I think probably for an archaeologist is probably one of the most exhilarating things. I'm not, I would think that would be awesome. But for you, in studying this, I'm sure that was pretty exciting. Yes, it was. And when you take a step back and you look around, uh, you have to remember that Palo Verde ruin, the archaeological site, is almost 80 acres. And when we excavated it in 1998, we, we worked on probably 16 of those acres where we stripped every bit of dirt overlying it away so that we could see all of the features in plan view so that we got a good perspective in, in these uh, habitation areas that were laid out and organized in a uh, logical fashion. You know, Hohokam sites are built with an organized plan. They have at the center a ball court and a plaza and surrounding it then are the habitation areas in a circle that go around. So the Palo Verde Park is right at the dead center of the of the village. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. That's pretty amazing. So the park itself is dead center. Then everything else is built out around that um, that center. And then the other important aspect, um, I believe, is the fact that there was a water source that was an active water source right near there. Is that correct? Yes. And even when we were there in the 1980s, uh, I was looking around a little earlier than my first got there. You could still see uh, dead stumps of cottonwood trees along the riverbank. So the water, before it was dammed up for flood control and other uh, problems, was still flowing. And you could see the result of that, of having a different type of environment right along that riverbank. And it actually has a floodplain that was probably used for agriculture. And then the habitation portion is on a terrace just above that. That's, and so historically speaking, let's, let's kind of shift a little bit because I think when, you know, hearing you and, and listening to you explain kind of what you found when you were out there with your team and, and all the different um, historical artifacts that, that were there, how important, can you talk a little bit about the importance of preservation then when it comes to, um, you know, why, why we have these discussions and, and why this is so important? Because I think it's good to hear from an archaeologist, what is the importance of preservation moving forward? Sure. Preservation of archaeological resources is what gives us a view of the past. It really does allow us to inspect houses and anything else that people left behind to understand how they survived in this environment without air conditioning or you know, without the modern conveniences that we expect and have come to rely on. And it's important to understand the past for a number of reasons. First off, there's people like me that just love the learning about the past, it enriches your life. You learn about other places and people. And so that's just uh, immense value to your welfare, just knowing how things are in the past and to see how we progress. Uh, it, it's also many archaeologists say, well, you can't, uh, you don't want to repeat the past. You don't want to do stupid things that happened in the past. Uh, so in that respect, it's trying to guide you to the future and to improve your life, uh, how you live. And in that respect, for these Hohokam sites in particular, you get to see how they survived on a landscape with less than what we had. Uh, 
and makes you understand that there are limitations to living in a desert. That, which is, I, 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 to me, that's the fascinating part is because you, you look at the cultures that came before ours and you do wonder, how did they survive? Because there are some harsh climates in our state. We know that, you know, I mean, summer here is no joke. And so you, you think about how did that survival happen? And so to hear you kind of peel that away a little bit and, and the importance of that preservation gives us kind of that, that look into the past. And I think that's so important. And, and from your perspective, from engineering, when you guys are, are doing a new build or there's a new site, what are some of the things that the city does to make sure that that preservation happens? Right. So we do go and look at the site and we, we make sure that there, that there aren't any, you know, important artifacts. We do have surveys. I know that, you know, for instance, when we worked on Paloma, community park we did um involve um, arizona the the state historic preservation and we did have archaeologists go out there and 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 take a look at the site and identify areas and and made sure that we you know kept those intact and preserved them i was very very important especially i think in peoria with the newer developments we're going out into the desert more now and we're discovering a lot of you know artifacts and um, places where Native Americans used to um, habit so inhabit so it is really important for us to do those surveys and archaeological studies before we start you know designing things and 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 going up and and tearing into the soil right we before we start digging we want to make sure we're not going to destroy anything of importance and uh, i think that that's obviously there's you know laws that you have to be able to you have to do that and that which is important but i think also it's up to the city to put a level of importance on that to say no we we are big into preservation Uh, and i think palo verde speaks uh, a lot to that right that this is this is a a, something that the the city invested in invested in to make sure is preserved to make sure that is celebrated as well because it's a pretty amazing site up there and it's it's good to hear that from the city aspect we take preservation very seriously seriously. And from the library's perspective, Jill, I think, you know, you and I could, could speak to this, but you know, the, the celebration of the culture of the native American culture within our library is also extremely important. Yes. I, I find it fascinating because, um, you know, talk about the Hohokam people and throughout this process about learning about Palo Verde park, we learned that there's like, you know, three or four tribes that came from that one time period that branched away and broke out and just to learn about how the changes happened over time. And even today, you know, those individual tribes still exist in some way, shape or form. We're learning more and more about that. And um, in the library, you know, we thought what a great way to recognize this is there's a lot of tribes here in Arizona altogether. And so, um, of course, each library has an art display that is... um, uh, highlighting Palo Verde Park and right. we're sharing some of those runes and what they mean and a little bit about the people from that time and uh, so you can come in and, and read those uh, um, posters and, and displays we have to learn about it if you'd like. We also pulled all our books and our collections that are related to Native American heritage you know across the country as well as in Arizona and at the main library we have a, uh, a Native American basket uh, display 
and um, to show some of the craft work and handiwork and whatnot that it went into making these really elaborate baskets that either have animals on them or stars or moons. Yeah, or the shades. designs are the designs are phenomenal. It's incredible. Right? Yeah. It's like incredible to see how perfect they are, right. and they're just all just intricate and they're all handmade, and it just makes you think about the skill and the artistry that exists there, and. One of the other things that we're doing throughout the month of November at both of our Peoria libraries is that each Saturday at 2 p.m. we are having a drum circle program. Um, we're rotating them at each library so that um, depending when you're available, you can hit one or the other and come to at least one of these programs. It's the same program we're going to be offering multiple times. But um, we have Dr. Lydia Woods that will be coming out uh, at 2 p.m. to do a Native American drum circle and getting the audience to participate and engage and see what that's like and learn about Native songs and learn about hoop dancing. And at the end, she has a very large powwow drum for everybody to participate in and, and really use. Cool. And you really just really get cool. in to the spirit of what what it was like and what it still is like for the tribes today who yeah. can get into the powwows and do that and so if you got your calendars handy please mark them because at sunrise mountain library it's a november 5th and november november 12th at 2 p.m and if you're not familiar with sunrise mountain library it's located at 21109 north 99th avenue here in peoria and then at the main library, it's going to be November 19th and November 26th. And we're located at 8463 West Monroe Street. And it's a, as Jill said, it's a very cool way to get involved in something that's very authentic and gives you a kind of a glimpse as to how we can celebrate and how we can understand um, some of the, the actual celebrations that happen within the Native American community. And Jill, you said something really interesting, and I, I want to bring Mark back into this because you had talked about there were several tribes that were in that area. And yeah. Mark, uh, my question to you was, is there evidence out there that 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 area was heavily traveled by different tribes? Was it, we talked about Hohokam, but was there, was there other evidence out there to, to suggest that this was a gathering spot for, for multiple tribes? Um, archaeology doesn't see tribes in the past as we think of tribes in modern parlance. Uh, what we see are archaeological cultures, in other words, people that share the same material goods. And so one of the things that we look at as archaeologists are ceramics, and they are often decorated. And in the case of Palo Verde, we found uh, numerous examples of material that were coming from different parts of Arizona. So we had stuff that was from uh, south towards Tucson, we had material that came from as far north as Flagstaff in the Four Corners area as well. And we believe what's happening is there is a ball court at Palo Verde, just outside of the park. And that ballpark, ball court, sorry, is what attracted people to the area. Mm. Now, where they came from, we don't know because all we have is what they left behind and whether they got that from their local place or if they're just passing it down from someone else that they obtained it from is not really uh, understood very well. But that ball court obviously attracted people to the area, and people were bringing stuff probably to exchange. You know, they would get together, have a good time, do uh, activities in the ball court, meet their spouse or future spouse, interact with people that they're related to or not related to, 
And so that ball court was kind of this, uh, it's called a community integrative facility because it allows people to gather together from distances far and wide and local and just interact with each other. And we see that in the ground in the terms of the types of artifacts that are left behind. That is, that. see, to me, that's truly fascinating because, again, giving that glimpse of this was a site where multiple cultures were coming together to exchange goods, exchange services. I I like what you said, meeting, meeting your future spouse, possibly. So it's a, you know, it's, it's like, Hey, Friday night, come on down. We're going to have a Friday night dance. You're going to meet somebody new. It's kind of, it's just amazing. Right. I mean, the whole aspect of this was a, a a site over a thousand years ago that was a, a cultural hotspot for trade, uh, for gathering, um, that truly, Mark, is 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 quite amazing when you when you look at it, right? I mean, just from an archaeology standpoint. Yes, there's probably only about two hundred to three hundred ball courts throughout Arizona, and so this one site having one at this location was pretty exciting for us to see. And at the end of the site's life, there was actually another use just above the ball court, which makes me think that they had some kind of ritual closing ceremony. Uh, People may have come back to the site after it's abandoned for a short time and said goodbye to the ancestors, or they could have just been closing it out for other purposes. But still, someone was there after most of the activity at that site had disappeared. And they came back to, in a sense, pay homage to what it was in the past. Right. It was living in their memory, obviously. And somebody came there to do some kind of activity. I assume it's a ritual of some right, type. Right, right. But that is, um, that's pretty cool. You know, I, you, you put that in terms of today, we do similar things, right? We, we have similar ritual behavior when we're saying goodbye to something or something has run its course. And, you know, I mean, Las Vegas just blows up buildings that's their ritual i guess you know but for our culture you know we 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 have our own way of doing that so it's very interesting that um that they had their way of saying goodbye to something that meant a lot to the to the cultures and the communities over a thousand years ago that's that's unbelievable um i i'm i thank you mark for for the time today this has been truly fascinating and jill anything you want to ask mark before we we let the uh, all the knowledge that he has run away well, from us yeah well tons of questions i'm sure we could keep him here all day <laughs> if we wanted to you know one of the things that i i think is is interesting is i know that palo verde park is just one of many sites across the salt river in this whole valley and connecting and i think that that was one of the things i learned in researching and looking this up and learned about the park i think that's so fascinating to me is that it's there there's many other places that i wasn't even aware of that existed here in the valley well thank you very much mark for being a part of our podcast today i appreciate it and uh, ann and jill thanks for being here as well and to all of you out there the what's up peoria podcast uh, uh the loyal listeners that we have thank you so much for tuning in and as i said this one is a little bit different it is part of a two-part series that we're doing for the month of november to celebrate native american heritage month and the idea again is to talk and discuss and celebrate the native american heritage 
and uh, learn something new. And I think, Mark, you did a tremendous job of, of bringing some, some new information to our listeners. And hopefully, as I said, people can get a chance to get out there and see Palo Verde because it, it is, is quite something to see. So again, for, for Mark and for Ann and for Jill, I want to thank you all for tuning in to this special edition of What's Up Peoria. Until next time, make sure you get out there, get to some events, and uh, see some of the wonderful things that we have in Peoria. We'll see you next time.